Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to the Psych Legal Pop podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss popular culture through the lens of an attorney and a therapist. My name is Brooke Brigham and I'm an attorney. And I'm Tess Brigham. I'm the therapist. This week, we're going to be talking about the Netflix documentary Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street. Mm. About I feel like I just took a finance class. I do too. <laughs> I'm ready for my final. Okay. I have 14, 15 oh, pages. I think of I have notes. twice that many. I've done outside research. Yeah. It has been a project. I learned a lot about the financial industry, yes. how all this stuff works. But anyway, yeah, this is the story of Bernie Madoff, who basically ran a Ponzi scheme. Um, $64 billion when he got caught. Yeah. Ponzi scheme, on, which is insane. On paper. He on had, paper. Sorry. On paper, <laughs> yeah. He had basically stolen $65 billion um, from his investors. And so... It's it's hard to know where to start here. I mean, I yeah. guess I guess we can start with just a little bit of history about Bernie. Um, one of the things I think that really motivated him is that his father was a real failure in business mm-hmm. and um, had several businesses, and they all um, kind of went under. Um, you know, this is like after the Depression and World War Two, and. Um, he was he was a son of Jewish immigrants, and he grew up in Queens, Queens in a in a very stable middle class nineteen fifties average kid public school. Yeah, but you know his, his father did have financial problems, and his mother ended up having to go to work, which back in those days was mm-hmm. a you know very shameful. Um, she went to work because she needed to go to work because the family needed money. So Bernie always kind of. Um, grew up in the shadow of, you know, wanting to be successful. And then he married his wife, Ruth, and and she came from money. Yeah, she was considered a catch for him because he was never handsome. Like he was, you know, he was never, I guess apparently people said he was awkward. He was not, you know, he wasn't this great looker. 
And she was very beautiful from this very prominent family. Yeah. Uh, money. And Bernie, he went to law school for a year or so. He dropped out and he ended up. Um, so his father-in-law, Ruth's father, had a, I think, was he an insurance broker? No, I feel like he was. Oh, or I thought he was an accountant or an accountant. That sounds that's right. Yeah. So he he let Bernie kind of set up a little office in his office. Yes. And um, he started this investment company and he traded over the counter stocks. And, um, you know, this the, is back in the day where you do it by telephone and it takes three <laughs> weeks for the yes. actual transaction to clear. And, you know, he he wasn't on the, on the New York Stock Exchange, but these were stocks that were... Um, you know, kind of small, not really reputable companies outside uh, of the stock exchange. Yeah, but he, but someone, and I can't remember their name, said that some of them were disreputable. Yeah, right. I kind of feel like if you look at the bigger picture, I feel like somewhere around here was already kind of cutting corners, already sort of not thinking through and thinking, oh, this is not an yeah, company. I shouldn't be profiting from it. I should be, you know, let it me was start very, working it was with very, that. It was very risky. Yes. But it it, it paid off because yes. he was willing to take the risk, had, you know, mm-hmm. nothing to lose, I guess. Um, and he ended up becoming very successful at it. Yeah. Well, so, but it was during this time, right, that he decided to start an investment advisory business. Right. And his father-in-law started referring him because he's an accountant. That's a good referral him business and i guess saul is the father-in-law right and that bernie had put all the clients money into one account and then he would distribute that money and apparently first off this is what my understanding and this is the part of the stuff that i'm get confused about like once you become an investment advisor, you need to register right. as an investor. So he never registered. Right. This is the beginning of his pattern. Yes. Where he has one legitimate business mm-hmm. and one not legitimate business. And that he and the other part about being an investment advisor is you're not supposed to put all your clients money together. Right. And then distribute it out. You you work. It's individual. individual. This is right. what's good for this person. This is what they need. This is they're going to retire soon. This person wants to buy a house. All right. of that. But he you know and apparently with the sec you can't have over 20 accounts combined i guess yeah i mean basically the sec has a lot of rules and Mm -hmm. it's meant to protect the consumer but it didn't but we'll get to that later but he just he just ignored that yeah he flat out ignored it he basically advised me you know he called it an advisory business he charged a fee Mm -hmm. but like you said he just pooled all the money together and then i think what he did is he would just take the profits and give it back to his father-in-law and then his father-in-law would dole out the yeah that profit that to was his very clients. weird too and then something happens that i really i feel like this was the moment in time where it all was born that in 19 um in may of 62 the stock market drops bernie did, lost everyone's money Mm-hmm. And a legitimate investment advisor would just come clean and say, hey, this is these are the stocks I put them in. That's how it is. I'm sorry. This this dropped. But he didn't come clean. He borrowed money from his father in law. He paid everybody, made it look like they everybody else is losing. Yeah, everybody. But except cute. for Bernie's clients, they're making money. Made and, him look like a genius. And he paid everyone back with that. I think it was something like 
20,000, 30, 30,000. 30, so I feel like that was the moment in time where he really, he sort of crossed a huge line because I, in that moment in time, he could have said, you know what, I'm just going to focus on my legitimate business. You know, this is all too risky and too weird. I'm not good at this or I need to accept the losses or whatever it is. And one person said that yeah. he could either be a liar or a failure and he chose to be a liar. And I think that is so huge that for him, it was better to be a successful lying, stealing <laughs> and steal people's money than to tell people I failed yeah. or I didn't. And, and really, when you really think about it, I have a whole other thing about failure. But when you really think about it, he didn't fail. The stock market dropped. Right. You can't you can't control that. Yeah, it's funny because he was he was trying to circumvent and control a system that is inherently risky yes you know and yeah. that's the whole point is that the stock if you invest in if you legitimately invest in the stock market you're taking a risk mm -hmm. the market predictably goes up and down has cycles if you're in it for any long period of time you're going to lose money yeah but then you gain it back and so yeah but he he just rewrote yeah the rules basically um, and then we get into, now we get into the 70s and he's got these two businesses going and the 70s, there was a lot of inflation. Um, he hires his brother, Peter, and they started using computers, which was very cutting edge at right. that time. Because, right, once upon a time, you picked up the phone, called someone, said, I, you know, buy me a, a thousand shares of, um, you know, AT&T and then, you know, click the phone and then it would take weeks and weeks for you to get right. anything back. Um, so this made him very cutting edge. And then he started to become, and this was a market maker. And a market maker is a middleman. I am telling you, I've never been good with this kind of stuff. Yeah. So this was all very like, ooh. Yeah, so it's like you kind of, you warehouse stock, you buy a bunch of stock and you sort of create your own market. Uh-huh. And then, and then you tell people, oh, well, you know, I own this stock if you want to buy it. Um, and again, these are for more risky things. Mm -hmm. And and I think what happened was, so the NASDAQ, which is a different, um, you know, is a different, I don't know what you want to call it, different thing than the New York Stock Exchange mm -hmm. was sort of seen as like a lesser than the NASDAQ. market. Yeah, the NASDAQ. But this, but the revolution of computers is it kind of legitimized the NASDAQ mm -hmm. because it made the NASDAQ more um, competitive. Mm -hmm. And so the stocks that were on the NASDAQ became more um, attractive. And I think those were the stocks that Bernie had been warehousing. Yeah. Again, this is my rudimentary understanding of it. Well, but the thing is, is that, and this is, I wrote this down. I was like, okay, so your legitimate brokerage firm is doing really well. And yet you still have to run this shady side business of investing. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's just... It's just really interesting to me that it, sometimes people do things that are a little edgy, a little shady because they feel desperate because they feel these things. But you're starting to make money. You're doing well. You could have just and walked but I think, by. I think what he was trying to avoid was, again, if you are invested in the stock market, there's a chance that you're going to lose. You could lose everything. And I don't I don't think he had this personality where he really wanted to be revered and respected by people he couldn't stand disappointing people. I don't think he could handle telling people, God, you know, I'm sorry, but you lost money. Yeah. You know, um, so he was trying to fix it. It was like he was trying to control this 
make this perfect world where no one mm-hmm. would ever lose money and everyone would always think, oh my gosh, you're brilliant and thank you. And Well, yeah, and that makes complete sense because we learn later on that he is a control freak. I yeah. think he has OCD. That's just my two cents. But I that he is a huge, huge control freak, which is a very common thing for narcissists. And I'm sorry, this guy checks a lot of these boxes. Yeah. So so his father-in-law then retires. Mm-hmm. And so these two guys, Frank Avellino and um, Michael Bennis. Something Bennis. Bennis. Yeah. It's not Bennis like Elaine Bennis. Right. It's, it's slightly off of that. They... They came in and because I think they had worked with his father-in-law mm-hmm. and they saw what was happening with Bernie. And they so they began to collect money from all kinds of investors and sent all the money to Bernie yeah. to invest through his, you know, quote unquote, and I guess advisory. Yeah. And so he this is his first feeder fund. And we'll hear a lot about these feeder funds. Right. Um, but also really quick, prior to Saul retiring, then, you know, um, Bernie starts raising money from friends and family. Mm -hmm. So he knows what he's doing, but he starts collecting money from the people in his life, which I think is very significant. Yeah. And this is when he starts to get, you know, very, he starts to get rich. Yeah. You know, and his, he moves his uh, family, has two sons now. They moved to Long Island and, you know, they're buying nice houses and boats and this and that. And, um, but that new these new accountants that are part of this feeder fund they also don't register as an no. investment this is all being done yes with no sec involvement and the thing was this is where it started which is um these two accountants they started taking clients monies and invested it with a secret manager whose name could not be revealed without you know that basically these two accountants were going to people saying, I have this magic man who can, you know, give you great returns, but you can't know who he is and it's all a secret and don't tell anyone. And that right there is a little bit of a red flag. Right. Because, and I know a lot of people that work and invest, you know, who are um, uh, investment brokers and all that. And they're constantly, constantly, any of us, anyone who has your own business, you're constantly like, this is what I do. You want referrals, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, you're constantly hustling. Yes, but it was very odd. So this is, it's very odd. Yeah, yeah, so then we get into the 1980s. And at this point, it, Bernie has made his way onto the board of directors of NASDAQ. Which is insane. Yeah, he's starting to become this big, you know, respected player in the financial world. And the financial world is blowing up. It's mm-hmm. the dawn of globalization. Oh, the 80s were a, the a 80s. decadent time. Yes. The Reagan 80s were time of, you know, lots of cocaine, lots of partying. And Everyone wanted to be in on the stock market. And yeah. The movie Wall Street came out, so it made it seem very, well, you saw the good and the bad of it. But yeah. But yeah, this is when he, um, and like you were saying with this kind of like... Um, control thing this is when he moves into this lipstick building Mm -hmm. an iconic skyscraper in manhattan and everyone said that like everything inside the office had to be perfect everything had to be black and gray but it was a very tense atmosphere Mm -hmm. and bernie could be a real bully it was like walking on eggshells um so this is in the office of his you know quote-unquote legitimate business this is the 19th floor of the lipstick building Um, oh yeah. And he's a bully. And also he's a bully to Peter, his brother. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then his kids, I don't know when his kids started working for him. 
because I want to say his kids are about our age. Yeah, I I think that comes later because like we're still in the 80s. They'd still be like in high school, college, probably. But there was the big market crash in 1987. Black Monday. Um, But because Bernie was operating (laughs) outside of the market, every he looked like a hero because he kept his business functioning. He kept paying out. I don't know. I don't want to say dividends because that's a legitimate, you know, payout. But he kept paying if when people wanted their money out, he could give it to them. He was giving all these, um, you know, on paper these these gains and yeah, and, and he's just he's sitting on regulatory boards. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's crazy. It's like well, the fox he, in the hen house. Yeah. So he right. So he was winning all this recognition. So yeah, he becomes a part of the SEC and he yeah. has to write the rule book. The rule book for what, yeah, he was elected to three terms as chairman of the board of the NASDAQ. Yeah. Which is insane. So, but he really fed on being the guy. He liked to be on the pedestal. Um, He wanted all of that. And so when do they create the 17th floor? Maybe that's coming up. So what happened? Well, okay. There's there's so much There's so much more. Okay. So then we get into the 90s and this is the tech boom. Mm -hmm. So- He's now doing five to seven percent of all trades on the New York Stock Exchange, um, and that's what they call the market making. Mm-hmm. Don't really. And this is part of his legitimate business, right? right? Okay. Well, um, yeah, because he's because he wasn't really trading the illegitimate, right? Right. Right. So the legitimate business he is in the market, but he's still doing his secret investing advisory business, and he's giving people returns that are between eleven and fifteen percent. And he never put anything in writing until yes, somebody in their company decided to do a brochure touting 100% safe investments, which, mm-hmm. of course, you can never say for yeah. a stock investment. So that's when the, the first time the SEC gets involved and they're like, wait a minute. And, you know, they investigate this Avellino and Bienes who were, you know, the, the guys, um, the accountants, the accountants who were. Um, left over from his father-in-law and they they point the finger at Madoff and um, so he gets a little bit spooked and then he panics and then so so the SEC real so this is the part that was a little weird so so he panics they go the accountants Bernie and a lawyer go to oh no no the accountants with their lawyer go to the sec they read out bernie then he panics the sec starts to smell like this could be a ponzi scheme you know you're not investing the money so madoff needed to show he made trades to give to the sec so he goes to his guy so this whole time he's running this ponzi scheme just like yeah i'll give you my money and then going i'm gonna do 10% 10% this month and right. 12 this month. But that nothing, kind of is, nothing is on paper yeah. to, to back it up. It's random. There's no... So he goes to, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to pronounce this last name, Frank DePascali to create the fake documents. And basically he gave the SEC, SEC fake documents and they were like, great. Perfect. Well, this is when they open the 17th floor. So yes. they take it in the 17th floor of the lipstick building. They open this office which is charged with basically night and day mm-hmm. creating fake trading documents yes and so they had to be historical so they had to go back to the te- technology of the 80s and mm-hmm. 70s they had 
dot matrix printers and these old computers so that they could create statements that looked like Mm -hmm. they were made in the 80s. And they had to go back and look at um, the historical data of what stocks traded for what amount on what day. I mean, this is a tremendous amount of work because the weird thing is I I had to do this once for a case where I had to look up like old stock prices. You know, you can go on the internet and say, what was the price of a share of Disney stock on Mm -hmm. January 1st, 1982? And you can find it. Yeah. It's amazing. amazing. But anyway, so they, they, they did that and they just had this factory where they were churning out these documents Mm -hmm. to show to the SEC to say, see, look, like these are all the, the trades that we made. And, you know, this is what we paid to people. And they tried to make it look legitimate. And apparently it satisfied the SEC. Yeah. And they, they closed the in a way. But because of that, the accountants had to give up their business. And they had to pay money back, which is $444 million, which Bernie doesn't have. So he goes to Jeffrey Pickauer. Mm-hmm. And so he has, and this Pickauer is also kind of a sleaze. So there's these big four clients, Pickauer... Carl Shapiro, Norman Levy, and there's one more, and I don't know why I didn't write it down, but there's one more. Do you have all four names? I didn't write them okay. down, but I know what you're so talking about. So these big, big, big old white men, um, and he persu- and Bernie persuades them to help him out. Like, you, ne- I need money, you know, because he couldn't, he couldn't close the biz and go legitimate. He, you know, he needed $440 million because that's what the... That's what the SEC said, according to his fake documents. Yeah, that's they said you... that this is what, okay, this is what you have. You, you need to return this to the investors. You need to close down this thing mm-hmm. and basically like, we'll we'll leave you alone. Okay. Okay. So yeah, he didn't have the money. That's when he went to these investors to get the money. And then he said that no one wanted their money back. Like he tried to return this money Mm -hmm. to the investors and they said, no, we like what you're doing. We're Mm -hmm. happy with what we're getting from you. And they wanted to keep the money with him. Mm -hmm. So Madoff said, okay. Um, So while the SEC missed one of the biggest frauds in history, he went forward. Yeah. He continued. Yeah. And again, that's why I just wrote this little thing, which is he could have closed this business. He could have been out. He could have been done. SEC wouldn't have never poked around again unless someone poked around that long. He could have walked away and just had this other business. But I think that it's back to that idea of success and not letting people down. I'd rather be, you know, I'd rather be a liar than seem like a failure to these people. I think he was also emboldened by the facts that he, he, the SEC came and investigated him and he got away with it. Mm -hmm. And so for forever after that, he would say, well, the SEC investigated me and Mm -hmm. they found I didn't do it. They didn't find any fraud. They didn't. They, they, They went on record saying they found no fraud. Because they thought he had the money. Yeah. Because he got the money from his investor friends. Yeah. So that just was like a license to carry on. Yeah. Well, and I think Pickhauer, I can't remember. Pickhauer, I think, starts to put together what's going on. And this will come back later. But then we meet one of these investors. They also interview investors. So... No, all of his investors are these really wealthy men. You know, they're regular people like any of us. And we meet Gordon Bennett and he sold his business. He created this business, built it. He sold it for a million dollars and he invested a hundred thousand with those two accountants. And, and he was getting 9% returns 
and he said it was good and it was steady and he and he said i did a lot of due diligence i i looked at this stuff mm -hmm. i saw the sec gave him a clean bill of health right so the sec is very much to be blamed for this very absolutely much. they are just as culpable and you know he did he asked around like he did all of the things that he needed to do and so then he he invested the other nine hundred thousand. so all of his money was in with him and we learn more about their story as yeah. we go and so then we we're also introduced to some other characters so, so the people that bernie had working on the 17th floor were kind of unsavory yes you had this <laughs> frank Scally who was right out of you know the mob movie there was a woman, Annette Biongiorno, oh, mm -hmm. working class woman from Queens. She handled the big clients for like 30 years. Jerry and George were the computer guys who were churning out all of these statements. So, you know, I, I think, you know, in the end, they could, they tried to claim, well, we didn't know what, what was going on, but that's um, debatable. But... Yeah. Um, Anyway. Yes. So, and that's the whole thing, right? Which is, it ends, the first episode ends here where they talk about, you know, you've got these juxtaposed, the 17th floor, which no one can get access to mm -hmm. except for the people that work there. And they interview this guy who was working there at night, I think just printing out documents. Yeah. He said they do 700 a day. Yeah. I mean, and he probably didn't know what was going on. It was, he was just being paid really well to work there at night and just, oh, you just need me to sit by a thing and print. Okay. This sounds like a great job. Yeah. Um, and and yes, the seventeenth floor. This is where the this is where the scheme will go. Yeah. But meanwhile, on the nineteenth floor, you know things are things are looking good because he's got this reputation. Um, and they and again they they had likened him to the soup Nazi. Yes, I love that. Like I thought be, that was great. Yeah, don't ask too many questions, or you're going to get um, you know kicked out of the the club. And, um, you know, he got a lot of Jewish uh, mm -hmm. customers because they trusted him. Yes. And he was also, this is the other thing, he was very charitable. Yeah. He was, his wife, Ruth, basically, while she had an office there, she very much, her job was, you know, to raise money, do these fundraisers. A lot of them um, honored Bernie. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, you know, that was her part. So he was also this very generous person. And I think that also contributes to why people felt like they could trust him. And um, but yet yeah, no one had access to the 17th floor and the sons, I think, are working there by this time. And they're they think it's, you know, they're asking questions. They think it's odd that he put, you know, Frank's down there in charge versus the sons and yeah. they have no and anytime they tried to ask anytime the sons or Peter tried to ask about what was going on he was this is where the bully would come out and he would just shut them down well he was trying to protect them yes you know he he, he kept them away from the illegal stuff you know and they had their suspicions and whatever but it, in the end it did it saved, it didn't save uh, Peter so much, but yeah. it did save the son. Well, if you, we'll get to the end, yeah. we save that. But in 1994, he goes to Palm Beach, buys a big home, gets into the Palm Beach Country Club because they accept Jewish people in this country club. It's $300,000 a year to, jo or to join. Just wanted to, I thought that was interesting. Um, but 
And so Bernie's down there and he's making it very exclusive to join his investing firm. So this is the thing, because it was illegal in many ways, that helped him tremendously because he didn't want to advertise. He didn't want to do this. So people are thinking like, ooh, I'm getting something that other people aren't getting. Yeah. You know, something special, something different. Yeah. And so I'm not sure what year we're in now, if it's like the late 80s. We're in the mid, or I mean, we're in the 90s. Mid, we're in the mid 90s. So this is when hedge funds come along. Mm-hmm. And so hedge funds are funds where you, you don't, you know, you hedge your bets. You don't just bet on good things happening and the market going up. You also bet on bad things happening. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the market will go down. So you, so one way or another, you're going to, Oh, oh I win th- something. I thought it was more about, or maybe I misunderstood this. So I thought that with the hedge funds, which I've never understood hedge funds, but I thought it was like that you are putting money into the stock and you're betting on things going up, which is, you know, when, when most people want, when you're investing in the stock market, but that you also take stakes in the market if prices go down and, and that also you have a cap of like, once it hits this number, that's, um, I was thinking about it like you go to Vegas and you have five hundred dollars mm-hmm. and maybe you're winning, 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 and that there's also a cap at which people decide, right? Like I'm not going to lose any more right. of this. Like I'm going to play five hundred dollars in the stock market, and if you know, once I get, you know, if it goes up, that's great, but I'm never going to go below the five hundred. I guess I misunderstood what hedge funds are. Right. Well, all, all I know is that like basically a hedge fund, you can basically bet on anything, mm-hmm. whether it's good or bad. So you can, you cover your bases. Mm-hmm. So because there's a chance that some good things are going to happen, some bad things are going to happen. Yeah. So it's not like the stock market where you're investing, hoping you only win if the market goes up. Mm-hmm. So in a hedge fund, you could actually end up um, making money if the market goes down because mm-hmm. you're betting the market's going to go down. down. Yeah. And so, yeah, again, it's it's pretty, it's oh, pretty very confusing. complicated, which also makes it a lot easier yeah. to get people, you know, to get people's money who don't understand it. And mm-hmm. then you act like you understand it. So they're like, oh, okay, well, here, take, so, take my money. And uh, so in the 80s and 90s, Silicon Valley explodes. It becomes more popular. Um you know, people are in Silicon Valley putting, pooling their money together, investing with Bernie. And then we learn about split strike conversion, right? You ride the bull market, but you have, this is what, okay, I could, this is what I thought this was. Splits, so this is what this is. You ride the bull market, but you have a floor under your losses, right? Well, I have written down here <laughs> Just so that, okay, so... Split strike strategy was something that Bernie made up and he started to market it. And so there was something called 220, which was um, in, yeah, the, in, fee structure. in the industry, okay. yeah, a fee structure that they would take a 2% fee plus 20% of the profits. So this all, this all was precipitated by these guys, uh, Fairfield Greenwich, mm-hmm. they formed this hedge fund and they want, um, they want Bernie to manage it. And so he says to them, he says, you know what? I'm not even going to charge you this 2% fee. Um, I'm just going to take 20% commission on all the trades. And, um, oh, <laughs> and of course, this is the, this, this is the, the fake. Yeah. This is the fake business. This is the illegal business. And like, you know, he just started dealing with this hedge fund and the different hedge funds and he just took this 
strategy that if you ask any questions, he'd just say, hit the road. I don't have time for this. Mm -hmm. And so people didn't ask questions. Mm -hmm. And so Fairfield Greenwich was his first big hedge fund customer. And um, this guy, Walter Noel, he was part of it. And he had five daughters who were all married to like aristocrats yeah. around the Five attractive the daughters. World. Yeah. And so he started, Bernie started getting, so they started investing and mm -hmm. Bernie started getting his hands in money all over the world. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, these, so he started getting connected, not just in New York, not just in his, his uh, bubble he'd been in, but now he's going worldwide. Yeah. He's, um, and branches out even more yeah and this is where they start talking about pick hour and how he kind of knew what was going on he was a lawyer and accountant and so he started drawing a bunch of money out and knowing that this is all a scam and um and then he had so he basically was the one person that knew what Bernie was doing, what he was doing and that he could exploit that and that he went to Madoff and asked for his statement to show losses so he didn't have to pay taxes, which yeah. really just pissed me yeah. off. So Madoff <laughs> is helping him commit tax fraud. Yes. And he's helping Madoff keep this Ponzi scheme going. Yes. So they're in this. Yeah, they're stuck with each other. Mm -hmm. And yeah, because when when Madoff needs money to cover stuff, you know, he goes to him and yeah, he did this sort of veiled threat to say, I want $7 billion out, mm -hmm. knowing Bernie didn't have $7 yeah. billion. And so, yeah. Ugh. Which really irritates me to no end. It's like, you know what? I pay all my taxes. You know, I'm not trying to get away with anything. I just, I hate these really wealthy people that just want to, you know, how do you think we're going to pay for libraries and things? Anyway, <laughs> so it's 2000 and the internet, we have the internet bus, the dot-com bubble bur burst and then we're introduced to aaron is it heart arveland arveland she's the author of too good to be true and basically what she wrote for barons in 2000 and she she's got a, a reporter for barons yeah. magazine and she got a tip because basically it was saying here's madoff and madoff was not affected by the dot-com bubble and you know, she finds out that he never loses, which is impossible. So she went to the exchange and asked traders about Madoff. No one had done any trades right. with him. So here he has these billion dollar um, investing and he says he's doing all these trades and she cannot find one single person who had done a trade with him. Um, and she went to him and asked to be interviewed and he didn't want to be interviewed. And and that was very odd because it's a big honor for to be some Barron's magazine to be in Barron's yeah. magazine to have this feature being written about you, and the article spooked Jeffrey Tucker. Wait, can I? Is he one of the ones from? He's one of the ones from Fairfield Greenwich, or yeah, I think so. He wanted to talk to Madoff. Oh, okay, that's right. So this was the one from Fair. I think he was Fairfield Greenwich, and so what happened now is. He was like, I'm worried about everything. What's going on? And so Frank and Bernie had figured out a way to, and I don't know how they did this. This They created it so that they could go on a computer and say to him, oh, to say, oh, let's pull let's, up let's this pull up trade. Up yeah, any of these trades. Give me a company, name a date. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they were able to, uh, they, so the, yeah, they, they had enlisted their two computer guys, mm -hmm. George Perez and Jerry O'Hara, so they, uh, yeah, they created this system where they could just per perpetuate the fraud. 
by being able to show customers, oh, yeah, no, this is real. Look, mm-hmm. I'll pull this up right now. And it and it worked. I yeah. sold them. And it, so it placated this guy and mm-hmm. went away. So that was like the end of episode two. Yeah. So we're halfway through okay. this. Well, we're at episode three. And we go back to the Bennett and talking about how he wasn't greedy, had made off investigated, you know, he, it was okay. So then we go to back to 1999 and we learn about a place called Rampart in Boston. And there's a sales guy named Frank Casey. And he thought that Madoff was a little fishy. He thought it was very weird that he had 11% on average positive returns. And he really wanted to know why. And also the company that he Rampart wanted to figure out what is yeah, he How can it? we replicate yeah, this? How do we replicate this if this guy's doing so well? And so that's where he was sent on this kind of a fact he was sent on a fact finding yeah and he he went to new york and he met up with this guy um villache um is it theory theory first i thought it was theory his last name is villache okay i can't he's got like four names yes and anyway his last name is villache he's wealthy investor for rich people yeah in europe basically right he's um a wealthy investor has lots of friends. It got all his friends in Europe, you know, to invest and with old money. As, like yeah, old names on, yeah, yeah, names yeah. on set. We're talking about like the Windsors, you know. Yeah, got them to invest with Bernie, and so yeah, he meets with him, and he says, um, you know, uh, well, at first Villachey was not disclosing who he was investing with. He had mm-hmm. redacted the name of the, of the firm. And so when Villachey leaves the room, oh, that's right. this guy, uh, Frank, he kind of takes a peek inside the <laughs> file and he peeks and he sees the name of the, you know, Bernie Madoff Investments or whatever. And um, so again, Madoff is not charging a fee. He's just taking the, the commissions. And so uh, Frank Casey goes back to Boston and he goes to this guy. This is guy is the hero of yes, the whole I, I love story. This guy, this guy he's my favorite, Harry Mar- Markopoulos, and he's this derivatives guy at this firm. He's the nerd. He's the math nerd, and um, you know, he said Frank says, "Well, can you look at this? You know, can you can you replicate this method?" And he's like, "No, like this is totally inconsistent yeah. with how the stock market works." He runs all these numbers. He you know, looks at everything and he's like, this is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, he is. And, and and apparently he he is able to say that within what, like an hour? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. oh, this is a Ponzi scheme. And this is when he, March 1st, 2000, writes his first letter to the SEC. Mm-hmm. This is his first letter. So mind you, this whole thing ended in 2008. So anyone who, you know, from for eight years, this, yeah, you know, anyway. And he, yeah, and I don't know if, it, I think it was in the very last letter he wrote to them, he gives this manifesto yeah. of like red flags, all these points. I mean, he could not have made it any more clear to mm-hmm. the SEC and, and gave them information, details. Nobody even called him. Yeah. Well, that and no one called him. He went to several times and they rebuffed him. He wrote to them. He tried to get a hold of them. They wouldn't. And then he went to the papers. And said, hey, I got a scoop for you. 
And they said they didn't want to go against Madoff. They, everyone was saying, you need a smoking gun. You need something big. But again, everyone's very afraid of Madoff. You know, so many people are making so much money from him that they don't want to rock the boat. Um, and so it just so happens that we're back to Frank Casey is traveling in Europe. He happens to share a cab with an investigative financial um, journalist who writes about hedge funds, basically. Mm -hmm. And the article comes out and again, saying a lot of the same things that are being said. And a senior, <laughs> this is my favorite part too. A senior enforcement officer calls Bernie and asks him, hey, I want to talk to you about your hedge fund. And Bernie goes, I don't have a hedge fund. And she's like, oh, I didn't think you did. Okay, okay bye. <laughs> click, <laughs> click. Just basically taking, I mean, taking him at his word and... Oh, yes. Oh. oh, he was so entrenched with the SEC mm -hmm. that, yeah, that the SEC would call him up, call him up on the phone and say, are you doing anything wrong? <laughs> no. Okay. Bye. Have a nice day. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about, because the, the minute that, you, I don't know if anyone's read this book. It's so good. Um, Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers. Have you ever read I've, that? I haven't read it, but I've it is, it. it's really, really good. And basically it's an exploration of how little we know about the people around us that we don't know, you know, and what happens when we get to know people. And it's about how we misjudge and misunderstand strangers sometimes. And we do this with terrible consequences. We think that we can read people a lot mm -hmm. better than we can. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we are incapable of spotting deception right human and so this is what gladwell talks about in the book that i think is so interesting is that human nature we default to the truth and we have to default to the truth like imagine what our world right, is it's a survival mechanism. yeah imagine what our world would be like if you're at starbucks and they said that's five dollars you'd be like really how do you prove that to me you know you're at this weird thing where we do have to, for the most part, most of the time, trust people because our world would be chaos. And yes, some people are better at spotting deception, but assuming that the truth is, is important for society to function. And what was so special about Harry uh, Markop Markopoulos, Markopoulos. Markopoulos was that he just, his brain works very differently. He doesn't assume that everyone is telling the truth all the time. And you know, the book really gets into Harry's background. He grew up, his parents had a bunch of businesses that failed. He saw, he saw that people, you know, screw stuff up and make mistakes. And then he becomes this forensic accountant, you know, and he's, his brain is trained to look for those gaps. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very interesting. You might have a different perception of this, The you know, I work with, um, attorneys and i've always found that attorneys have had the hardest time in therapy because a lot of you know dealing with anxiety and dealing with things is really trust you have to trust that things are going to go you know things are going to be work out that you're going to be okay and a lot of attorneys their brains are trained to be skeptical mm -hmm. about everything mm -hmm. to look for the holes and be like well look it over here look it over there and it and i just found over the years that it's just it's harder for someone who has that kind of brain to turn it off or if you've been trained in that way to turn it off and to say okay i have to trust you know i'm not saying that no i would agree with that i mean it's definitely um yeah very cynical skeptical that's how you're trained you're educated and trained in law school to think that way yeah you know and it's hard to not let it bleed into your um everyday life although 
somehow <laughs> there's certain areas of my life <laughs> where it never bled into. Yes. <laughs> but that's another story. Well, very quickly. So there's another book that I love called Rethink by Adam Grant. Um, and basically the book is about questioning ourselves about rethinking the, the, the powers of rethinking something. So you're questioning yourselves and making the, so when we question ourselves, we make the world unpredictable. And it requires us to admit that the facts have changed and that was once right now may be wrong. And that's mm -hmm. very hard for people. That's like that sunk cost theory. The sunk cost yeah. fallacy. Yeah. yeah. And so reconsidering something we believe can threaten our identities, make us feel like we're losing ourselves. You know, people laugh at someone who uses Windows 95, but there are many of us who are clinging on to opinions that we formed in 1995. And I, and I bring all of this up because I think that this is, I don't think that Madoff thought to himself, oh, this is how new human nature is. And this is how this is. I think he was just, you know, sort of be, you know, figuring out what do I need to be like and do to make this scheme work. But I think that because human nature is some, because human nature is, is that we have to trust and believe people and that so many of these people, you know, I've been to Bernie's home. I've been this, I've been that. If I question Bernie, then that means that I have to question so much about my life. And mm -hmm. people do I sell that my own judgment. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Bernie was just doing what Bernie needed to do to make himself feel good. Yes. You know, he, he like I said, I think he really had this intense desire to be adored and, you know, uh, trusted, ironically. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, and have people admire him and look up to him, especially his family, you know, yes. the people that were close to him. All right. But let's anyway, let's, let's pivot to, you know, 9-11. Okay, 9-11 happens, yes. Which so, is the best thing that could have ever happened for Bernie. <laughs> well, it's sort of the beginning of the end for Bernie, um, in a way, but... Uh, How so? Because well, well, I thought that he was right, like, well, at this, that point. Yeah, yeah. At that point. So when 9-11 happened... All anybody cared about was like the economy, getting the markets back running, getting things stabilized. Um, so, of course, you know, the, the deregulation kicked in. Let's make it easier for these financial um, markets to function, get back to normal. All the money, the budget for investigating any kind of financial fraud went into, you know, anti-terrorism, yeah. wars, you know, that followed after that. So, you know, the SEC wasn't even really doing much to begin with. And now they're really doing like absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, and so this is when his sons, I think, became more uh, involved in the business, but he still kept them separate from yeah from everything well, and they're asking questions like what yeah. happens if you die right you know what happens if you die suddenly what and i think it was his secretary that was also this his secretary was being interviewed i think the secretary who worked for him for a long time was also saying things like you know hey what happens if this happens like if you yeah what if, if we lost all of our records what yeah if, you know or what if we, and, no one knows what's going on and if Bernie you. did die and the boys don't know what's going on then they would have to i mean of course in the secretary's mind she has no idea what's going down on the 17th floor but yeah. she's being smart and she's she's asking these questions and saying the boys would have to start all over again so why why would you want to do that yeah so it, the legitimate business became insolvent somewhere between 1998 and 2002. So mm -hmm. that's why I was saying like in this time when 9-11 happens, 2001, 
he's already in trouble. Mm -hmm. So he had to funnel millions of dollars from the illegal 17th floor to the 19th floor between 2002 and 2008 when he was finally caught um, under the guise of investments to make the legitimate business look better. Mm -hmm. So he was making it look like all this money is being invested Mm -hmm. in the um, legitimate business. Yeah. So if... If, for example, if he didn't have the illegitimate business, the illegal business, he would have been, you know, he his he'd be out of his be out of business. Yeah. And so but he's also spending like crazy during this time. He's, quote unquote, loaning all this money to his sons Mm -hmm. that he knows is never going to be paid back. And then this is I don't know how this exactly came to pass, but our friend Harry (laughs) Markopoulos, he meets with Villache in Paris um and I don't, how did that happen that I don't, yeah i don't know well i guess he does have that connection so with the rampart is that what it's yeah called? rampart rampart yeah. um so i think he went over there to try to solicit some europe you know get business from these european clients and Villicia says oh my european clients aren't interested because of course the rampart has risk it's a legitimate business and they were with Madoff and Madoff had no risk and so they were just going to stay with him yeah um so and then also he learned that Bernie was handling money through the Cayman Islands mm -hmm. and the Cayman as we all know is you know a place where you shady money goes to be laundered and that apparently Madoff was you know now accepting money from criminals but of course he is one too so what does he care um and harry starts to get really worried because he's the one he's the only one that is shouting this from the rooftops and you know if cartels are investing in bernie and getting a great return or their money is being you know handled and laundered they don't want anyone messing with that Mm -hmm. for sure so he's like carrying a gun he's looking for car bombs um and yeah it was during this trip that uh, Villachay explains that all of his money's there and, you know, it can't be a scheme. And if it is a scheme, I'm a dead man. You know, I thought that was so, yeah. that goes back to this thing of, so, you know, you, you get someone who's sophisticated and worldly and understands these things and he puts all, everything into Madoff, all into one pot. So it can't it's so hard to believe. I know. Yeah. That was the thing. It was so hard for me to believe that all of these very sophisticated people with everything at their fingertips, mm-hmm. they could... Uh, uh, so, yeah. so weird. So we get back. They talk a little bit about, right, how much Bernie would bully Peter, made fun of him. Um, and that, and not this very upsetting to me, <laughs> uh, Peter goes to therapy, <laughs> which I think is a great thing. And um, and Bernie makes fun of him. Like, why do you have to get there? In front of everybody. In front of everybody, which is really rude. And I, <laughs> it just pisses me off. And then the secretary, she explains this is, this is who he is. And this is a problem in our workplace. Is that <laughs> people see, again, this is 2000, but I mean, that's wrong, right? No one should be made... No one should be made fun of at work. No one should be made fun of going to therapy. And then the secretary is basically just excusing the behavior. That irritated Well, me. this is Wall Street. I know. This I is, know. I'm going to let it go. This, these are the big boys. Okay. So let's move on to 2000. I feel like <laughs> next I have 2005. Well, yeah. Well, two, 2000. So there were, okay. So there were a lot of complaints to the SEC. I don't know if they were all from Harry or who they were from. <laughs> anyway, the SEC gets a, c- complaints about... Um, 
Madoff, they assign two junior examiners, you know, straight out of school. Which I think is very interesting. Yeah. Why they do that. Right. right. To conduct an exam of Madoff's business. And so usually when they come in and they do these exams, they meet with the compliance officer. They don't meet with the, the boss. Mm-hmm. No, Madoff comes in and he, you know, he's going to supervise this. And, you know, he he goes through the motions with them. They They don't know what they're doing. He denies that. He's running a hedge fund. Um, he says, uh, you know, that um, he he's like, I dealt with this with your boss years ago. We settled this years ago. Well, yeah, he keeps pivoting. Right. So when they go into things, when they start focusing on things that are legitimate, he's friendly and nice. Right. And when they start to get closer to the illegitimate, I keep saying illegitimate, the illegal business, the Ponzi scheme, yeah. he gets mad. And and that's why I think it's so interesting that they brought in these two junior people it's like what are you doing this guy's if this guy is the master of wall street and people are complaining about him why do you send two junior people they like taking it seriously yeah i think they knew they had to do something and that of course exactly what what happened is what you think happened is that he intimidated them he sweet talked them he did this he did that and they dropped it they wrote a report and said you know, no, no, nothing there. And now yet again, the SEC has given him the green light. Yeah. So now he's even more emboldened. Well, not for long, though, because to cut to August 2005, he's down to $13 million. I mean, only 13 Only $13 million. Yeah. But he has calls in, meaning, you know, people wanting their money out for $120 million. Yeah. So he's underwater now in the Ponzi scheme. And I think the legitimate business is completely... Um, you know, pretty much out of business. So he calls up Jeff Pickauer. You know, um, he gives Pickauer gives him the hundred and twenty million. He also gets some money from this woman Sonia Cohn, who's a financier from Vienna or something. I don't know how she got hooked up with her. She brings a lot of cash. Yeah. So together with you know Pickauer's money, her money. Um, you know, he's kind of flush again. And, you know, he's he's still going. He's, yeah, he's still he's he now he's, you know, getting uh, money wherever he can. Yeah. It, but it but this is the beginning of this growth, like 2006 till 2007. Well, this is right before the, yeah. the, this is the bubble burst. So this is the bubble forming here. And Harry Markopoulos <laughs> has not again. given up. It's like um, a dog with a bone. Good for him. Thank God for him. Yeah. He's telling the SEC this is mathematically impossible to get these rotations these returns there's no counterparties for the trades meaning they can't find a person on the other side um, who, who actually traded with him there's all these red flags he sends his red flag letter to the sec with 30 red flags yeah detailed yeah like detailed handing up on this is why this is why these are red flags and um he said he actually started knocking on the doors of some of his clients like trying to get information um so then in about 2006, Madoff... Oh, wait, hold on, though. Before that, though, what happens is, is that Madoff gets spooked again. Mm-hmm. And he has a conversation with the SEC that right. says, I'm so going to come in yeah. and I'm going to come in and I ask me anything. Ask it was me like he that thought you he could go in and talk yeah. his way out of it. Well, well and he and did. did. He did. Yeah. So he basically, he answers all their questions. He lies right through his teeth and he gives them. And of course, this is the big poker play, mm-hmm. right? Which is... He gives them his account, no, false information, false information that was, quote unquote, his account, which, 
if you went in there, it should show 60, whatever billion or 7 billion, wherever we're at at this point. He gives it to them on a Friday afternoon, walks out the door, mm -hmm. spending the weekend thinking I could get busted yeah. at any moment. And then Monday comes, Tuesday comes, Wednesday comes, nothing because the SEC didn't even bother to check. Right. Well, and also the only thing that they did, they obviously never checked, but they did tell him that he had to register yes. as an advisor um, with the SEC to market himself to future clients. Mm -hmm. Big whoop. Yeah. Is it, and was this the account that was at JP Morgan Chase or is mm -hmm. that a different? Account? Yeah. Well, they talked about that towards the end. Yeah. But yeah. And so between 2006 and 2008, billions i mean billions because he was the the ponzi scheme for a long time was operating in the two to three five billion under 10 billion yeah and then it just started to grow and grow and so and he's starting to live large and he and he again battled the sec and won so it emboldens people even more like oh he's really not doing him wrong if the sec had shut him down had actually taken five minutes to right. look up this account and do their jobs, they, billions of dollars would have been saved. Yeah. Billions. So now we're up to 2008. Uh, and such this, a dark time in our history. This is the financial crisis, the housing market crashes, the financial crisis. Now all of a sudden, everyone wants their money back. All of the yeah, world. Yeah, people panic. Um, and oh, just prior to this, again, he always does this right before something bad happens. He went on a spending spree in 2007, doubled people's salaries. He's spending like crazy. Anyway, so when the market crash happens, he he goes to all of his old friends, Fairfield Greenwich, Sonia Cohen. Nobody will give him any money. And he says, because interspersed in this documentary are interviews with Madoff himself mm -hmm. from prison when he gave a deposition in the uh, the the civil plaintiff case yeah. for these people to um, get their money back, the victim, get a fund for the victims. And he says that basically at that point he knew that it was over. Mm -hmm. He had he was down to three hundred million dollars. <laughs> Only three hundred million. He tried to give his sons these huge bonus checks mm -hmm. to basically offload this money because yeah. he knows he's and and they you know Mark and Andrew were incredibly um, ethical. Yeah, considering like what they'd been raised in, but you know he did try to shield them from this stuff. But they were like trying to talk him out of it. Like, what are you doing? He comes clean to his family. And the sons are just distraught. And mm -hmm. this this really, you know, they were lucky that this happened. So Mark's father-in-law is a lawyer and Mark and Andrew go to see him immediately. And um, the, his father-in-law tells him this is a continuing crime. You must report him to the FBI now or you will be an accessory. Mm -hmm. And they do. Yeah. They smartly do. They call the FBI they tell them everything that they know. The FBI goes to his house to arrest him. Um, and he basically, before he even calls his lawyer, he just confesses to mm -hmm. the FBI, confesses everything. Yeah. Well, one thing they mentioned in this that is that apparently when Ruth, they ask Ruth and Ruth says, what's a Ponzi scheme? Yeah. And so that's always been a question. How much did Ruth know or not know? And they said that she was the bookkeeper mm -hmm. and that when they when the FBI went in, she had an office, I think, on yeah. the 19th floor. They 
looked in her office, looked in her desk, and they said it looked like a bookie's desk or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like, she, there was evidence that, that she knew. Yeah. You know, that she... I think she was just saying that in front of her kids to try to look innocent. Yeah. Um, well, and, and what's very interesting about this is that also, right, we're at this point in our history, because this is the end of 2008. This is, I think he's arrested December, he comes clean like December 10th. And all of this stuff was going on. We, you know, there was this recession and he becomes sort of the poster child of this is what's to blame for our, you know, everything. And then Villachey commits suicide 11 days after Bernie turns himself in because he said it earlier, I'm a dead man. Like I can't, and and he- Well, he just, just the guilt. Yeah, because yeah. he had lost all this money, not just his money, his friend's yes, money. Everything. He told all his friends to invest with Madoff. So because he pled guilty, it took a lot of the heat off of the feeder funds, the banks, no criminal liability, and there should have been a lot more people prosecuted in the end. Well, and Frank, well, well, when the FBI, you know, they first discover the 19th floor, then they discover the 17th floor, and Frank DePascali basically knows mm -hmm. it's over. He becomes a cooperating witness. He gives them all the information, gives them a roadmap of how the whole scheme worked, told them everything, cooperated, and then, um, he, and then one of the ironic things was, you know, he still had some money left, I guess, because he he got out on bail, which people were pissed off about. Mm -hmm. um, Bernie, Bernie, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, it came out that you know the victims of this were, you know, not just these very rich people, and not just the, you know, not rich people in Florida who mm -hmm. were trying to retire, but I mean, celebrities like yeah. Steven Spielberg, Ellie Wiesel. Yeah. I remember Kevin Bacon yeah. and his wife yeah. lost Here, everything. Here is Sedgwick. They lost yeah. everything. Yeah. A lot of people. And there were a lot of people invested with him that lost everything. And um, yeah. Yeah. And so he pled guilty in court um, March 12, 2009. And he refused to implicate anyone, even though it would have been impossible for him to do this alone, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um you know, the 17th floor employees said they didn't really know about the Ponzi scheme, but they knew that the trades never occurred. Mm -hmm. So they had some culpability. Um, yeah. And then they talk about the J.P. Morgan. So this is the other part is his account was with J.P. Morgan. So this is a huge entity that had his account and they had a view of Bernie's scheme because they knew the amount of money that was in his account. And they were profiting yes, from his profiting from this. Yeah. And so the fact that no one at JP Morgan, basically they had to pay a $2 billion in fines, but no one was charged. But the reality is, and I think that you, what I learned from this is these big banks, you know, JP Morgan and- They just know, pay the fines. They just pay the not. fines. And you know what the thing is? They do this crappy stuff and they probably make billions off of this scheme. And they're like, oh, Slap your hands. Bye. You know, and what what's two billion to JP Morgan? Nothing. Ugh. It's just it, and so that's the thing, right? They're saying, how can you transfer billions of dollars back and forth to all these accounts and not generate what they call a SARS report, right? Because you know, mm -hmm. if you ever deposit a check yeah, for ten thousand dollars, God, they're holding on to it for a week. I'm like, who do you think I am? Yeah, and they're required if there's anything suspicious. Yeah. The, the you know, over to ten thousand do something to file this 
this uh, paperwork. No, it's it's so, a joke. And then we learn about how awful this was for the victims, which is basically there's the SC, SIPC, which is an insurance fund for brokers. And it, and basically, I think all of these entities and brokers, and they, they all pay dues into this so that if someone does something wrong, just right. like what happened they with Madoff, that yeah. they could get the insurance out. But then basically they were only asking like for $150 in annual dues from not just one person, from her bank, her bank or something like $150. What is that's like a lunch for them. Well, so what happened was there wasn't any money. And so the SIPC said, okay, well, this wouldn't really apply to a Ponzi scheme. You know, basically they didn't have the money. And instead of saying we don't have the money, we mismanaged this the whole time. They said this isn't covered. This isn't covered. Typical insurance. Right. And then we learn about the clawback. (laughs) Well, yeah. So what happened was they they appointed a trustee to try to recover as much money as possible. Picard. It's very close to pick hours. Yeah. So like we were saying before, the losses on paper were 64 billion, but the amount of money in actual cash invested was 19 billion. And remarkably, they recovered 17 out of $19 billion because they were so aggressive. This mm-hmm. trustee, this Pickard guy, Irving Pickard, he he aggressively, aggressively went after anybody who got paid more more than they invested. Yes. Um, this is the clawback. The that, clawback. Yeah. So it, there were all these um, clawback lawsuits for people who took out more than they paid in. And, you know, some of these people were were very rich. So the problem with the clawbacks was that even though people were the people, the people who made the most profits and who gained money from investing with Bernie were the early investors. And so what was happening was that this Picard was going to people saying, you know, 30 years ago, your grandfather made, you know, $10 $10 million from his time with Bernie, we want that back. And it's a little bit right. of like, that's something my grandfather did. And a lot of it was, it wasn't even $10 million. It was maybe they had um, made a couple hundred thousand dollars and that money they used to send their kids to college, yes. to, to pay off their home or to buy a retirement home or to retire on or whatever. And it's like that money's gone. Yeah. Yeah. The money's gone. And then they're trying, they're trying to claw this money from it. And the thing about Pick out, uh, Picard is is that his law firm made mm. billions from this case. Yeah. So, so even the people maybe who aren't, you know, if they go back to the Bennetts, right, uh, and they talk about their story, which is essentially they made money from Madoff. He was always making money from Madoff, and then they go back and try to claw back money from him. And he's like, "But I've spent all my money, and I'm living. I think." Looks like they live kind of a simple life where they just, he had this business and he sold it. Um, and now they have to pay all this money back that they thought was theirs. It's almost kind of like getting a, a tax bill or something like yeah. that. But of course, Pickard and his law firm made billions from clawing back all this money. So yet again, someone else is making money off the backs of these people yet again. And that just bothered me. Yeah, so um, Bernie's friend, Jeffrey Pickhauer, who was always bailing him out, um, you know, he probably would have ended up being indicted as a co-conspirator because he was, but he wound up dead in the bottom of his swimming pool. Yes, in Palm Beach. Yes, which they uh, not 
well, I think uh, the consensus was he had a heart attack. So who knows? Yeah, very suspicious. Very suspicious. Um, so, and then June 29th, my birthday, 2009 was his sentencing. And he got, and there was a lot of fear around, you know, would he just get another slap on the wrist? But he was given 150 years. He wanted to go home. And the judge was like, oh, no, you're not going home. Yeah. You're, get your stuff together. Bye. You're yeah. off. Took You're him into custody. And apparently he, he wanted to apologize to his victim. Oh, yes. So he turned around and just sort of looked at the people in the courtroom and gave this half-assed apology, but he showed no remorse, mm -hmm. no emotion. It was just like going through the motions. So people were upset about that. And then his brother got 10 years. Which I thought seemed pretty harsh because I got the sense, I think... Peter was their quote-unquote compliance officer, manager. but I think that that really, Bernie really let him out to dry because Bernie never told him the full truth. And I think that, I think Peter had a sense that something was up, something was wrong. I don't think he knew the extent of it, but I felt for Peter because I felt like he, he probably felt so trapped in there, like working for his brother, maybe doing things that he didn't want to be doing. Yeah, because I thought that he was keeping him separate from the 17th floor, like he was doing with his sons. But I think that there were times where Peter had to help him out with things. And I think Peter just sort of did it, knowing that maybe this isn't completely legal. I don't know. I thought that was, that's probably why he was going to therapy. Yeah. Um, and then Frank DePascali, he actually died of lung cancer yeah. where he was able to be sentenced and then some of the other players on the 17th floor, Annette, Annette and um, Jody Krupe, Jody Krupe, they got six years and the two computer guys got two and a half years. Yeah. Wasn't um, too much. And then the world really turned on the Suns. And I think this is what is truly tragic about this entire story mm -hmm. beyond. I mean, obviously, so many people, he ruined so many people's lives. But he ruined, in the end, even though he was trying to protect his children, he didn't protect them. And this, everyone turned on the sons. Like, the sons were hounded they were in the harassed them. Yeah. They couldn't do anything. I'm sure they probably couldn't get a job anywhere. They've lost everything. And, um, and then what was also happening was that the sons, Ruth, you know, who had been married to Bernie forever, Ruth was having a hard time letting him go. So I think Ruth was still going and visiting them. And the sons were like, listen, if you want to be in our lives and in your grandchildren's lives, he needs to be done. Yeah. Out, out of our lives. Or him. And so I think that at the time, so I think that at the time that um, uh, all of this was going on, I think that the sons were estranged from Ruth and... Andy seemed to be able to move on. He's the younger of the two, but Mark got in such a dark, dark place. And he ends up at 46 years old committing suicide on the exact day. So two years after the day that he learned about his father's Ponzi scheme, he hangs himself in his apartment. And it's yeah. just tragic. And so this was another really interesting thing. I was listening to Kate Casey's podcast, Reality Life with Kate Casey, and she interviewed I think what's her is it yeah, Diana the woman who wrote the book yeah the Wizard of Lies or Wizard of and that one that's the book that was the Robert De Niro Michelle Pfeiffer mm -hmm. um, movie that was made she um, she was talking to her and, and she was telling Kate about she had visited Bernie two times in person for the book in prison and she said you know the first time he was even though he's in these 
<laughs> this denim, you know, heavy thing that he was perfectly done, that his everything was his pants were creased mm-hmm. like just, you know, right. The appearances, even though I'm in prison for the rest of my life, I'm going to give appearances. And she said the second time she saw him was shortly after Mark had committed suicide and he showed up and he was disheveled and, you know, buttons were not properly. Something was, you know, his collar was out. He had cut himself from shaving and it really hit her like, oh, he's, you know, that he was really, really affected by Mark committing suicide. <laughs> so that's what it took. Yeah. And, and <laughs> that's but, what it took for him to have some feelings about. But what was anybody? interesting is she said that was the initial because I think she saw him shortly after the suicide. I think that then what happened was that she talked to him uh a little bit later than that. And then he started making excuses and pointing the finger at other people. Mark committed suicide because of this. Mark mm-hmm. committed suicide because of that. Blah, 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 blah. So he has the way she she said it was, right? We use sociopath and psychopath a lot, but there is a difference in that he's a sociopath, not a psychopath, which means there is some level of humanity inside of him in there if you tap into it. But he's not going to... but. And he might feel it, but he's not going to take um, accountability right. for it. So. Yeah, and then to add tragedy on top of oh, tragedy, his other his, son... I didn't know this. Oh, his other son, Andrew, he had had cancer before this happened, and he had, um, you know, beaten it, quote-unquote. And it came back, and he ended up dying of lymphoma at 48 years old. And that was 2014. So, so Mark dies in 2010, Andy passes away in 2014 and Ruth has been kicked out of all of her yeah, homes. The FBI seized all their homes. Everything. She everything. Was, she was literally homeless. Yeah. And living in her car. Yeah. I didn't. While. Yeah. Out of two suitcases in the back of her car. Yeah, she, lost she lost everything. She everything. Lost her jewelry, like any valuable possession. Mm-hmm. She just had her clothes. Yeah. You know, and that, that was it. Yeah. And, and your, your quote unquote husband, I don't know. Did they ever divorce? And they might still be married. They're probably, st- well, Bernie died. Yes. At age 82. Uh, in 20 last year. year. 2019, I thought. No, no 2021. He died right. April 2021. Which is crazy. 82. So listen, at least he spent from 70 to 82 in prison. And hopefully it wasn't comfortable. And hopefully he suffered in some way, shape or form. I personally don't. And I guess it takes a sociopath or a or a big narcissist to do this, I would have such a pit in my stomach every single day if I was running this Ponzi scheme. I would be so worried about everything. And the fact that he got it rolling for as long as he did, it's it's pretty unreal. And I think that it's, right, the combination of him and the, and the lengths that he was willing to go and do, but also just... The SEC, someone needed to get, I'm sorry, someone from the SEC needed to be right next to Bernie and, and yeah. Peach well, and Chase this, and a few others. This is the concept that they kind of end it with, is that basically Madoff was the scapegoat of the financial crisis. He was the only person to go to jail and his victims were the only ones who were not bailed out by the government. So nobody from the financial industry went to jail, no regulators, no CEOs, no heads of banks. All the banks were bailed out by the government. And uh, 
Yeah. And, you know, the, I mean, the co- Congress did. They showed a clip. Congress had these hearings. Oh, yes. Harry t- tore everyone in the U.S. Yeah. So they investigated. Congress, that was great. They investigated the SEC. Harry came and, you know, testified. And, um, you know, some woman from the SEC tried to speak and all the Congress people were like just yeah tearing her down. But what became of that? Nothing. Like, do we have any more regulations um, in place today than we did before? I don't know. I mean, there was once Obama was elected, he did some financial, you know, the Dodd-Frank, you know, kind of financial uh, reform. I don't know what. No, it's not enough. It's never enough. It's not enough. That's the problem. Until we start putting these men behind bars that Mm -hmm. clearly know what they're doing and clearly know what's happening and signing off on them it's never going to change because like i said earlier jp jp morgan knew the entire time never did anything about it because they were profiting they were making so much money and their big thing was oh okay give me a couple dollars back okay you're okay and that's the part that really irritates me is it just feels it just feels really unfair. <laughs> I know that's yeah. really stupid because life is is not fair, but it just, it these kinds of things can just get under my skin because yeah. it just doesn't feel fair at all. It's not, but you know, the, this is, again, the this is more about, you know, crime and, and someone perpetrating a crime and how people become a victim of a crime. Because like I said, it's like, I just, I can't get over how these people didn't know, they didn't mm-hmm. question, how they just blindly followed this guy. I mean, they could have invested with, they, first of all, you're already rich. Yes. Okay. You're already rich. You could never invest a dime and you could live high off the hog mm-hmm. like a prince for the rest of your life. You don't need this money. You're trying to make more money yeah. than you already have. And so why, I mean, it's just, it's a hard concept to grasp how these yeah. people got involved with him, how they would uh, just completely trust him. I don't know. I'm, I'm happy. I'm skeptical. Yeah. I'm happy to be cynical. <laughs> and I know for me, I think I need to be a little more cynical. I'm too, I'm too trusting and I need to be a little more cynical. I think I'm not as, I'm not controlling like that. So I'm kind of, I trust people are doing what they say they're going to do. And, um, yeah, I've gotten burned, but I'd, ra- I don't know. Personally, I'd rather live that kind of life than, you know, the other. Yeah. Well, there's a healthy balance. Yes, there is. So, phew. Oh, oh my God. God. I feel like we ran a marathon. That I was know. watching it, doing all of that was, it was fascinating. It was I feel a lot smarter yeah. than I did before, but it was a lot to take in. <laughs> but it's important. It's yes. important information. We need to... Yeah, to know we, we have to, and something's got to change. I just all of that one percent, all those you know, all those people that were protesting down at the you know down at Wall Street. It's like what have came to any of that? Nothing. You know, the one percent still the one percent, and you know they're just getting richer and richer and richer. Yeah, well, and not paying their taxes. Yeah, income inequality is the worst it's ever been, mm-hmm. especially with COVID. Like. You know, they're consolidating now, mm-hmm. you know, like even just on a basic level, like um, I don't know if you follow Robert Reich. Um, he's the former um, secretary of labor under Clinton. I've seen the name. Yeah. So he's he's a great source of information on social media. And he talks about, you know, the economics of all of this. And even just on a basic level of grocery stores, you know, that all these grocery stores have now 
um, consolidated like Albertsons bought Kroger, who also bought like all these big names. So basically right now, you know, um, there's a conglomerate of, mm -hmm. uh, that owns most of the grocery stores in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think that's going to do to the price of food? Yeah. You know, so on every level, the, these, these multi-billion dollar corporations are getting together so they can charge higher prices. They are, um, you know, people talk about inflation. We have inflation because no, because these companies would rather give money to their stockholders than cut their prices. Mm -hmm. The gas prices, mm -hmm. the, these, these multi, I mean, we're talking, this isn't even billions. We're talking trillions, multi-trillion dollar companies will not cut the price of gas so that they can make a little bit less money for their shareholders. Yeah. A little bit less. They're still going to be rich AF. You know, just like these Madoff people, you're already rich. Like, what more do you want? Yeah. But I think it's like anything else in life where, right, there was a time in my life where if I, you know, if if I could make the amount of money that I make now, I would think that my whole life was made. Right. Right. And it just happens. You start buying more stuff. You get stuff. used to it. You get used to you, it. Yeah. Yeah. You get used to it. You start buying things. You start upping your you lifestyle. You maintain it. Yeah. And so you do want, okay, now I need more money. Now I need more money. But it is, it's, that's where it needs to be regulated. Like that one company can't own every right. single grocery store. Yeah. What happened to the anti- um, but I think that's what Reagan did. Wasn't these all Reagans, the deregulating? Yeah, well, that Clinton, was him. Clinton, Clinton did a quite a bit of deregulation. Yeah. Um, we need yeah. more regulations. Yeah. We, <laughs> I'm sorry. We, we do. Anyway. Uh, all right. We'll, we'll get off our sofas yeah. and move on. Anyway, it was very good, but I think our, our take was very thorough. It so was. You could, you could just listen to this. Yeah. You could probably get college credit for this yeah. if, you, if you tried. All right. Anyway. Bring us home, bro. Okay. Thank you so much for listening, especially if you made it to the end of this. Yeah. We appreciate it. Can I very quickly? I wrote a book. It's called True You, A Step-by-Step -step Guide to Conquering Your Quarter-Life Crisis. It's out now at Amazon. Sorry. That's what the <laughs> books are. Um, it's not at your local independent bookstore? No, because I did it myself. So it's just me. Okay. Um, I have some books at my house. But anyway, it is for um, if you're 20, early 30s, and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. Um, it is also great if you have a 20-something. It's a great book for someone who's maybe launching and trying to figure things out. Uh, it's all about uh, conquering this time of your life where you feel like you have so many choices and overwhelmed and don't know how to make decisions. So True You by Tess Brigham. Thank you. Awesome. All right. So if you enjoyed our podcast, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe. Yes. And also uh, leave a review, a five-star review. A very positive. A positive review. review. And then write a review if you can, because that really does help. Um, we would really appreciate it. Yeah. And um, we'll, we see. We'll, we're, we'll see you soon. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moon.
Homepick.com